1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. He had three ships and left from Spain. He sailed through sunshine, wind, and rain. He sailed by night. He sailed by day. He used the stars to find his way. A compass also helped him know how to find the way to go. Ninety sailors were on board. Some men worked while others snored. Then the workers went to sleep, and others watched the ocean deep. Day after day they looked for land. They dreamed of trees and rocks and sand. October 12th, their dream came true. You never saw a happier crew. Indians, Indians, Columbus cried. His heart was filled with joyful pride. But India, the land was not. It was the Bahamas, and it was hot. The Arakawa natives were very nice. They gave the sailors food and spice. Columbus sailed on to find some gold to bring back home as he'd been told. He made the trip again and again, trading gold to bring to Spain. The first American? No, not quite. But Columbus was brave, and he was bright. You likely know this poem, at least the first few lines, and you learned it in school just to learn about the discovering of America. If you're older, you learned about Columbus discovering America. If you're younger and went to school after 1991 like I did, then you learned about the concept of the Columbian Exchange, which was a more sensitive way to discuss Columbus's arrival in America as opposed to claiming that he discovered it. The natives learned and benefited from the knowledge of the Europeans. They got things like mirrors. The Europeans got things like corn. That was the legacy that many of us were taught in school. And as we've gotten older, many of us have not challenged what exactly the Columbian Exchange meant or what exactly happened when Columbus arrived in America. But every Columbus Day, we're challenged with the notion of what Columbus was, who he was, and what he meant for the natives, for the Europeans, and for what we do with what happened in modern day. So before this Columbus Day, I wanted to read a little bit more about Christopher Columbus and understand more about Columbus Day. That's what I will be presenting to you today, sort of what I've found. Christopher Columbus is a complicated person like many people throughout history. There are things about him that are admirable, but there are many more things about him that are despicable. It then raises the question of what do we teach, how do we teach it, should we celebrate Columbus Day? And what are the things that we ought to celebrate? So stay tuned as we learn a little bit more about Christopher Columbus. I'm your host, Chris Spangle, here on The Chris Spangle Show. Let's start with Columbus Day itself. Last year, Joe Biden in 2021 changed Columbus Day at the national level to Indigenous Peoples Day. In preparation for this, I listened to two podcasts from last year discussing this. One was the CBS Sunday Morning News podcast as they interviewed someone from a Native American tribe giving their perspective, and they were very, very happy about the change. Then I listened to PragerU's Stephen Crowder discuss Columbus Day. Frankly, literally every word of that podcast was wrong about Christopher Columbus. And it was mainly about how we're changing our history. We're changing the fundamental value of America and teaching our children. At the time, he didn't have the, the phrase critical race theory, but that is exactly what he meant, is that we are trying to indoctrinate our children to hate America. I personally don't feel that way. I think we have to understand exactly what happened in history and learn to reconcile it. And here in America, we don't have a very good system for working out our history. If you look at Germany and the way that they've dealt with Nazi Germany and that time period and the horrors that happened, there's been a 70, 80 year long reconciliation with what happened. And it has led to the preservation of 
things like Auschwitz and uh, a conversation about the evils that happened in our past, America has long avoided those conversations and through their history have tried to cover up much of that history in things like the In 1492 Rhymes or the glossing over the Columbian Exchange uh, for things like trading corn and gunpowder. Columbus Day, I think, was the first cultural touchpoint where we started to reconcile with social history and what exactly happened in America's past. Columbus Day, I think, is representative of the struggle that we seem to be having in schools now with things like the 1619 Project and the 1776 Project and what exactly we're taught. In one of the documentaries I watched, which I highly recommend, which is Columbus in America, one teacher was talking about textbooks, and Pearson textbooks sell something like $6 billion in textbooks, and they talk about Franklin Pierce. Well, Franklin Pierce is, um, how do I put it, imperialistic, militaristic, and took the Monroe Doctrine of America and Manifest Destiny, spreading American Americanism, basically, throughout the entire uh, United States and as well as the Western Hemisphere, to an extreme. When Franklin Pierce got to his hometown in New Hampshire after he was uh, finished being president, he stepped off the train to absolutely nobody, because nobody liked Franklin Pierce, because of the way that he conducted himself. Why? His contemporaries had no love for Franklin Pierce because they knew exactly what he had done. But textbooks don't report that. Why? Because Pearson doesn't want to offend the school districts in New Hampshire and talk about the history of the expansion West and what happened to Native peoples because New Hampshire school districts might not buy those textbooks. So part of our lack of understanding about Christopher Columbus to this day is the fact that we don't want to upset people. I may have said on a recent show, and I know I posted online about a conversation that I had with one of our listeners. Every year, she would invite a Holocaust victim, someone that fled Nazi Germany to the USSR, ended up in a gulag, ended up homeless and countryless after they've escaped the USSR, and would go to speak to the school every single year about their experiences and the lead-up to Nazi Germany and the oppression that they faced in the USSR, and students would get a lot of benefit out of it. Well, this year, she wasn't invited back. She wasn't allowed to speak. Why? Because the administration didn't want to ruffle any feathers because they're scared of the parents. Maybe not a bad thing, but maybe they're scared for the wrong reasons. Uh, disinviting a Holocaust victim uh, is... There's two sides to the Holocaust, but one is right and one is wrong. And we seem to be going through something that we have gone through many times in American history, but many people don't understand it because they don't quite think about their traditions. And one thing I have learned over the last couple years is I have tried to really research the historical origins of what we think and why we do what we do. There are so many things that we consider traditions that were started by people in the late 1800s, early 1900s as a way to build a national identity. And Christopher Columbus is chief amongst these. Christopher Columbus in the founding generation, you, you, you didn't have, like in Britain, 
the Druids and the thousands of years of history, the, the Celts, you didn't have Alfred, you didn't have the myths of King Arthur and Robin Hood to build a national identity. You didn't want to necessarily use the British myths. You had Puritans who didn't really want myths at all. And so the founding generation used Christopher Columbus as someone who was a, a founding member of their nation. They certainly didn't want to use Native Americans. It didn't resonate with white Puritans in the North. Let's just say the South didn't want to use anyone of brown skin to build a national narrative around. And so... Christopher Columbus, an Italian, would be adopted as a founding father, as a white man that discovered America and helped forge the nation that they were then creating. What every generation understands is that a national identity is important for social cohesion. You have to have these founding narratives as a way to keep society glued together. And one of the problems, as we've talked about on this show with social media, is that it starts to challenge that social cohesion. And one of the fears about talking about Columbus or giving up Columbus Day or taking down statues of Confederate generals is that it it causes people who really believe in patriotic values and Americanism, so-called, to panic that they might be forced to question some of the ways that this country was founded and what else would they have to give up? What else might change? Which is a perfectly valid fear to me. If you start challenging Thomas Jefferson uh, and we start to accept the truths about some of Thomas Jefferson's life, then are we taking down those statues? And is that a, a Trojan horse way to get rid of the natural rights tradition and the libertarian values that made America great? I think that's one of the struggles that and struggles, tension that I deal with as I learn history and try to think about what I believe and what the future holds. And it's a perfectly valid tension, and it's perfectly valid to question whether or not these are beneficial. By that, I mean, what's the benefit of giving tools of social cohesion? But it's like patriotism. Libertarians, many of the libertarians listening, view patriotism as an evil, because patriotism as we lived through in the 9-11 terror era, was used as a tool to silence dissenters to build a militaristic response in Iraq that was largely a failure that was not necessary, that was cause of the death of over a million Arabs and Muslims in the, the Middle East. Are the patriotic values that were pushed by the Bush administration in the early 2000s something that were beneficial to Americans? Libertarians will often question those patriotic values, but don't want to question some of the patriotic values built around the myths of the founders and people like Christopher Columbus, because they don't want to have to reconcile history. I'm not, I'm not quite sure, but it's something that I, I still have not yet worked out. But I think that's part of why we have this tension with the Columbus Day tradition. Like I said, one of the surprising things about learning about something like Columbus Day is to find out its origins, that it didn't start with the founding, that it started in the 70s, <laughs> the 30s, the 1890s. Columbus Day's tradition really begins in, let me pull up my article here so I have it, um, the, the first Columbus Day celebration took place on October 12th, 1792, when the Columbian Order of New York, better known as Tammany Hall, held an event to commemorate the 300th anniversary of the historic landing. 
What you have to understand about Tammany Hall, if you've never heard of Tammany Hall, it was the machine that basically ran New York politics in the late 1800s. Well, really, I mean, for over 100 years, I think. I mean, it was very powerful. Go look up Tammany Hall if you want to understand more. And it's sort of become synonymous with uh, corruption, uh, boss tweed, and uh, I think one of the best books on policy was uh, Plunkett of Tammany Hall as he dispenses his advices, his advice, excuse me, on uh, politics. But what Tammany Hall did is walk down to the docks as people were landing in New York, immigrants from Ireland, from uh, Italy, from Germany, and they give voice to the the new immigrants uh, and challenge the established white Anglo-Protestant traditions. Um, and so that's why they were known as the Columbian Order of New York. Columbus has long been a very important symbol for Italian Americans specifically, which plays to the heart of the argument over Columbus Day. Even though I think Christopher Columbus was born in Portugal, we'll get to that later. There were a couple things that happened, uh, and I want to read an article, a little bit of an article by William J. Connell um, from the American Scholar titled What Columbus Day Really Means, which I will put in the show notes. He's he sort of talks about why we have holidays. You know, we don't have holidays in the same way that maybe England has holidays where they have feast days that were connected to the first the Catholic Church and then the Anglican Church. Many other societies were built around a a religion or they were built around an ethnic identity. You know, in Lithuania, you're Lithuanian. America was the first country that was really built as that melting pot. Again, another one of those founding myths, which is is actually true. It's it's a blend of many cultures. It's a pluralistic society, which is why the application of right-wing identity politics trying to make us Lithuania doesn't work here. The founding generation through well, through today, we're really still always trying to forge that national identity. And national holidays were always an important part of that. Uh, days like Labor Day, days like Columbus Day, these are days that were created by the American government to identify values that Americans care about. Discovery is an incredibly important part of American identity. We discovered America. We discovered the West. We went to the moon and discovered that. We discovered a new world on the internet. Discovery is an important part of what makes Americans Americans in their mind. And Columbus Day was partially built around that concept that we are an adventurous people, that we are a curious people, that we are a courageous people. And these are the values that we celebrate. So he, he kind of talks a little bit about what days should be holidays, why do we celebrate certain holidays, there's feast days, like the Feast of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin, uh, that Italians celebrate, maybe you have an Italian fest, or St. Patrick's Day, not an official holiday, but an important day for Irish Americans, and celebrating them. Uh, he writes, Consider the range and variability of the meanings of our holidays. Certainly, they have not always been occasions for celebration. Memorial Day and Veterans Day involve mourning for the dead and wounded. 
Labor Day commemorated significant hardships, hardships in the decade when unions were struggling to organize. Having grown up in the 1960s, I remember how Abraham Lincoln's birthday, now lumped in with President's Day, with some of its significance transferred to Martin Luther King Jr. Day, took on special meaning during the Civil Rights Movement and after the JFK assassination. When thinking about the Columbus Day holiday, it helps to remember the good intentions of the people who put together the first parade in New York. Columbus Day was first proclaimed as a national holiday by President Benjamin Harrison in 1892. 400 years after Columbus's first voyage. The idea, lost on present-day critics of the holiday, was this would be a national holiday that would be a special recognition for both Native Americans, who were here before Columbus, and the many immigrants, including Italians, who were just then coming to this country in astounding numbers. It was to be a national holiday that was not about the Founding Fathers or the Civil War, but about the rest of American history. Like the Columbian Exposition, dedicated in Chicago that year and opened in 1893, it was to be about our land and all of its people. Harrison especially designated the schools as centers of the Columbus celebration because universal public schooling, which had only recently taken hold, was seen as essential to a democracy that was seriously aiming to include everyone and not just to preserve a governing elite. I will pause here and say that the Benjamin Harrison Museum is right down the street from me. We have an interview upcoming with uh, the CEO of that museum. Benjamin Harrison was incredibly dedicated to the concept of Americanism and democracy. He had been changed by the Civil War and fighting in the Civil War, and he really felt that we needed these national narratives, that we needed these foundational myths to meld us together to never repeat what happened with the Civil War. He is one of the people that really helped shape the concept of us as America as opposed to 50 states. I will let you work that out if you feel that that is a good thing or a bad thing, but it is what it is, and Benjamin Harrison was incredibly impactful in trying to um, use schools, specifically new new you know, schools to to build that national narrative. It should also be noted that the Pledge of Allegiance was started at the Columbian Exposition. The Columbian Exposition in Chicago in 1893, what you probably know about it is the guy that was the serial killer uh, because of the Eric Larson book, but it was incredibly important. Uh, the beautiful cities movement impacted cities around the nation, uh, it was really seen as America's coming out party, and one of the tools that came out of that was the Pledge of Allegiance, which uh, I said literally a week ago at some event that I went to, and you go to the Rotary Club and you say it, you said it every morning in school. Uh, schools didn't have flags in uh, them until the 1920s when the Klan put uh, flags in schools in uh in the state of Indiana. Why? Uh, starting in this time and really ramping up in the 1920s, there was the concept of dual loyalty for Catholics, that you really couldn't be a true American uh, if you were Catholic because the Pope had sway over you. People in Baltimore thought that uh, there, there was a rumor in the early 1900s that the Pope had built a tunnel 
underneath the Atlantic Ocean and was marching an army to land in Baltimore to invade and take over America. And Italian immigrants were largely seen as um, part of that invading army. Here in Indiana, in the 1920s, the Klan circulated the rumor that the Pope had bought up large tracts of land in Indiana outside of Cincinnati and had built a temple in Cincinnati and was planning to invade Indiana and take it over, which, of all the places in America to invade and take over, uh, (laughs) why Cincinnati and Indiana? But you have an incredibly strong anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic sentiment. Here in Indiana, I mean, a third of the state was a member of the Klan by all estimates, and they were choosy. So people think up to two-thirds. And and if you read the Fiery Cross, their newspaper, it was largely Catholics and immigrants that were their targets um, because there weren't many Jews or, or blacks at that time here in Indiana. Um, and so this anti-Italian uh, sentiment that festered for decades really got kicked off around the 1890s. And one of the triggers, there are two triggers for this. Um, It was in the immediate background, he continues, in 1892, there was a lynching in New Orleans. There, on March 14th, 1891, only 10 weeks after the Wounded Knee Massacre, which I uh, jumped forward in time, and we'll talk about that in a minute, 11 Italians were lynched in prison by a mob led by prominent Louisiana politicians. A trial for the murder of the New Orleans police chief had ended up in mistrials for three of the Italians and the acquittal of others who were brought to trial. Unhappy, so basically this police chief in Louisiana was killed uh, and they blamed 13 Italian murderers and lynched 11 of them. It was the largest lynching in American history. Um... Unhappy with the verdict and spurred on by fear of the mafia, a word that had only recently entered American usage, civic leaders organized an assault on the prison to put the Italians to death. This episode was also troubling to the U.S. government. These were legally innocent men who had been killed by a mob, but Italians were not very popular, and even Theodore Roosevelt was quoted as saying that he thought the New Orleans Italians, quote, got what they deserved. A grand jury was summoned, but no one was charged with the crime. President Harrison, who would proclaim the Columbus holiday the following year, was genuinely saddened by the case, and over objections of some members of Congress, he paid reparations to the Italian government for the deaths of its citizens. I will put in the show notes um, a New York Times article called Vicious Bigotry, Reluctant Acceptance, and American Story. And it goes more in-depth on this. I'll let you read it. It's, It's a fantastic article that talks about basically how Italians became white. Because at this time, they were not seen as white. And and this is the Times doing basically a mea culpa by quoting itself from that time period. I mean, calling uh, Sicilians rattlesnakes. And one of the things that this article points out is how the Times, the northern newspaper, uh, post-Civil War, talked about Italians and blacks and talked about the outrage that this generated and the sympathy that this generated around the country. And for 
decades, there had been black Americans trying to get anti-lynching legislation passed to stop the, the indiscriminate killing of blacks. But America and its government did not move until this incident because the Italian government and the American government had significant tension at the time and were pitted against one another. And they they cut off diplomatic ties with the Americans and Benjamin Harrison was facing the prospect of invasion or attack on either American soil or American interest abroad at a time when Americans were trying to uh, build and expand their own empire, uh, but still at this point did not have much of a standing army or navy um, and were very vulnerable. And so Congress actually passed an anti-lynching law due to the Italian government pressing on them which became another outrage within the black community in America in the 1890s. I will say that Benjamin Harrison, for his part, was progressive uh, on race and is, you know, sort of, as we'll get to with Columbus, oh, he's a man of his time. There's people like Benjamin Harrison that stand out and sort of uh, have a conscience, or Bartolome de, de la Casa, who is a contemporary and on the island with Columbus going, this is wrong. Um, uh, but wasn't moved by black lynching is still the point. Uh, it, it was only when the Italian government pressed them. Um, but the article really talks about Italian oppression and what Italians went through and uh, how they were talked about and how they were seen, and what this incident meant for uh, Italian-Americans. And so it was incredibly an incredibly powerful moment uh, in American history, as was Wounded Knee, which we'll jump back to the American Scholar article and go back a few years in 18, uh, 1890. Uh, this article author writes, you won't find it in public literature surrounding the first Columbus Day in 1892, but in the background lay two recent tragedies, one involving Native Americans and the other involving Italian Americans. The first tragedy was the massacre by U.S. troops of between 146 and 200 Lakota Sioux, including men, women, and children at Wounded Knee, South Dakota, on December 29, 1890. Shooting began after a misunderstanding involving an elderly deaf Sioux warrior who hadn't heard and therefore did not understand that he was supposed to hand over his rifle to the U.S. Cavalry. The massacre at Wounded Knee marked the definitive end of Indian resistance in the Great Plains. The episode was immediately seen by the government as potentially troubling. Although there was much popular sentiment against the Sioux, an inquiry, an inquiry was held, the soldiers were absolved, and some were awarded medals that Native Americans to this day are seeking to have rescinded. And so, Benjamin Harrison puts out this proclamation as a part of a, a way to quiet the Italian-American community, and to quiet the Italian government, and to build the concept patriot you know to instill patriotism and 
citizenship and the importance of loyalty to the nation and the celebration of social progress. Italian communities around the country would then kind of seize on the idea of Columbus Day and unofficially celebrate it. And the first observance of Columbus Day as a holiday was in Colorado through the lobbying of a first-generation American in Denver named Angelo Noche. Uh, And the first statewide holiday was proclaimed by Colorado Governor Jesse McDonald in 1905, and it became a statutory holiday in 1907. Uh, So it would kind of slowly roll across the country until the 30s. And there was a guy who was named Generoso Pope, Generoso Pope was a an Italian American who um, owned newspapers and radio stations and was a very influential New Yorker, and he was backed by the Knights of Columbus in lobbying, and he was very very important to Franklin Delano Roosevelt because remember Frank Franklin Roosevelt wins in what thirty two thirty four in the Great Depression. And he's from New York, and he uh, received much of the Italian vote because of Generoso Pope. And so when he becomes president in 1934, Congress passed a statute stating, The president is requested to issue each year a proclamation, one, designating October 12th as Columbus Day, Two, calling on the United States government officials to display the flag of the United States on all government buildings on Columbus Day. And three, inviting the people of the United States to observe Columbus Day in schools, churches, and other suitable places with appropriate ceremonies that express public sentiment befitting the anniversary of the discovery of America. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt responded by making such a proclamation. The proclamation didn't lead to the modern federal holiday. Then Franklin Roosevelt interred Italians during World War II. In 1941, uh, they were interred as enemy aliens. We've all heard, I think, Japanese Americans. George Takei has been somebody that has put that at the forefront. Many people don't know that many German and Italian Americans went through the same thing and were deemed enemy aliens. Um, because they thought that they would be loyal to Italy and not America in World War II. Um, in '42, Franklin Roosevelt removed the designation of Italian-Americans as enemy aliens and announced it on Columbus Day, along with a plan to offer citizenship to 200,000 early Italians living in the United States who had been unable to acquire citizenship due to a literacy re- requirement. try to keep blacks from vote. Sorry, something in my throat. But the implementation of the announcement was not completed until those interred in camps were released after Italy's surrender to the Allies on September 8th, 1943. I'm reading that from Wikipedia, the Columbus State entry. Um, So it it wasn't until the 60s that uh, there was a guy named Maria Luca from Buffalo who founded the National Columbus Day Committee, and he lobbied to make Columbus Day a hollow, hollow, uh, holiday. Excuse me, And he was finally successful when Lyndon Johnson, in 1968, signed in Columbus Day as a federal holiday in 1971. And they changed the holiday to the second Monday in October, uh, so everybody could have a three-day weekend. 
Um, and then, uh, like I said, on October 8, 21, Joe Biden proclaimed that October 11th would be recognized as Indigenous, Indigenous People's Day by the federal government. Changing it. Um, many Italians still feel like this is an attack. And if you watch that documentary I, men I mentioned, uh, Columbus in America, you see the uh, Italian guys talking about how, and, and listen, we lost Polly Walnuts this year. In honor of Polly Walnuts, I suggest that you go to a Columbus Day parade and beat the shit out of somebody. And that is really what most of us think about when we think of Columbus. We think about the confusion around Columbus Day, everybody having wrong takes about it, and Polly Walnuts and Silvio going to beat the crap out of somebody at a Columbus Day parade because it's incredibly important to Italian Americans. And this guy was sitting there saying, you know, hard work and family values and on and on talking about all these things that embody Italian Americans. And I agree with him. You know, when you look at the Italian heritage in America, hard work, entrepreneurship, family, these are very important traits. But those were not traits that Christopher Columbus had. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, there was an article that I did not read called How Columbus Day Fell Victim to Its Own Success in the Atlantic. And that's sort of true. Like, many of these now white, formerly persecuted ethnic groups, uh, like Italians and Irish, set in motion some of these ways to gain respect and then became just start, sort of part of the culture. Like, I don't know if I'm Italian or British or German or what. I'm just like a an American, right? And that is what many uh, people of color are fighting for, basically, and why they feel that Columbus Day should be changed in, into National Indigenous Peoples Day because they ought to have the same lack of consideration, I guess it should be put. But Italians are upset that they're losing their day. But do most people who are like third or fourth Italian-American generation, like, do they think of themselves as Italian? Like, other than, yeah, I'm Italian. Right? Like, <laughs> I, I don't know. So, um... Personally, I would not celebrate, I, I, I mean, I think it's time to talk about Christopher Columbus and who he was, um, because if you're an Italian-American and you understand who Christopher Columbus was, then you really don't want to celebrate him. Christopher Columbus, uh, I base much of what I know about him on a book I read uh, by Lawrence Bergen, um, and, and it's, it was an excellent book, and I felt that it was very fair uh, in that it talked about Columbus in who he was as a good person and a bad person. He was a complex human being that had good traits and bad traits. And I think you're not being intellectually honest if you don't acknowledge that. I think people want to look at like, I definitely think the bad outweighs the good once you get to know him as a person, but Bergen's book, I felt, was very fair in explaining him as a character and then his actions on the four voyages that he took. 
so I may, I'm not going to go way into his history. I would highly recommend that book if you want to know more about Columbus. It was um, excellent. I'll put it in the show notes. And goes very in-depth into what happened. Um, but I'm, I'm going to give you a few bi- biographical points on Christopher Columbus. I watched a documentary, again, in the show notes that I'll, I'll put that there, uh, about his birthplace. So he was born between August 25th and October 31st in 1451. And the majority of scholars believe he was born to a wool weaver, wool weaver in Genoa, Italy. At the time, it was not Italy. It was the Republic of Genoa. And Genoa was an incredibly seafaring uh, group of people. And he started out as a um, as a self-educated person. He went to the he went to sea and started sailing at the age of fourteen, and traveled widely as far as the British Isles and as far south as Ghana. And he was largely self-educated. Uh, he read widely in geography, astronomy, history, and he was developing this plan to seek a western sea passage to the East Indies, hoping to to profit from a lucrative spice trade. Uh, several things motivated Columbus. First, he was, in his writings, incredibly pious and incredibly devoted to the Catholic Church. He was also incredibly obsessed with gold and wealth title, status, nobility, and uh, he was also motivated by his own vanity. He was doggedly committed to his mission and did not care how that mission took place. So let me jump back and continue talking about his origins. There uh, is this documentary that I watched that I just mentioned uh, that he was born in Portugal to a Portuguese prince and a Jewish mother. And that's that view that he is Portuguese is held by his descendants and uh, the descendants of Vasco da Gama and Simon Wiesenthal, the, the famous um, Nazi hunter, wrote a book about how he was Jewish. And there are several little uh, tangential things that it kind of his real name was something like um, Sanibel de la Cruz or something. Um, I'm, I'm getting Zorka. It started with a Z. But in the documentary, they show like how he signed his name and how that like lined up with the three letters of his original name and um, all the places that he named when he landed in the the West Indies were all the names of like where he was from. They believe it was Cuba and Portugal and all the names were like Portuguese and Spanish towns uh, and didn't speak Italian very well, but he spoke Portuguese and Spanish very well. And he got an audience with uh, the Spanish kings, king and queen, because of his, his uh, association with the Templars and a letter from the Port- king of Portugal. They believe he was like a, a spy for the king of Portugal. So when he comes back from his first trip, his first voyage, he lands in Lisbon, Portugal, and meets with the king for three days before going to um, meet the king and queen of Spain, Ferdinand and Isabella, the people that paid for the trip. Um, and then they took action, and basically he said, yes, Brazil exists, and you need to fight for this 
line and that's why Brazilians speak Portuguese is because the Portuguese were able to take that land because of a, a diktat by the Pope. So like they, they have a whole theory that seemed fairly um, well reasoned, although they, they would leave things out. Like they say, like the first island he named was Cuba, which is where he was from in Portugal. But that's not true. It was um, San Sebastian. Uh, right. San Sebastian. I may be getting that wrong. Um, again, I'm giving you the overview. I'm not giving you the complete historical accurate record. You're going to have to read the book or read his Wikipedia page for, um, I'm going to be as accurate as my memory in this monologue will allow me. (laughs) Um, but there were a couple things. If you understand stuff about Columbus that were kind of like, all right, you omitted this to make your case a little bit better, but it was very interesting. So he could have been from Portugal. He could have been Jewish. He, um, his granddaughters are buried like in an old synagogue. You know, he was very close to the Jewish community, but then like he also supported the removal of Jews in Castile by the Spanish crown. Uh, again, just like all these, he's just always contradicting himself. There was always like, he's just a miserable human being. He dies a pariah for a reason. <laughs> um, but you know, he, uh, read widely and was very ambitious uh very um i want to say courageous but like the like lewis and clark are courageous right like they go you know what i'm gonna go walk around in the woods and we may never come home but like columbus was taking a voyage that the Portuguese and the Spanish knew could not be completed. He was kind of nuts. And in every every instance in this book kind of shows that he was just a little off-kilter, like almost megalomania, like he was very manic, depressive in the way that he would pursue things. So he had this idea to sail west to China, Now, why? Because in 1453, the Silk Road collapsed as Constantinople fell to the Ottoman Empire. So let's talk a little bit about the Silk Road and why everyone was trying to um, get a faster route to China. Uh, Most of this is from Wikipedia, right? So uh, the conquest of Constantinople was the capture of the capital of the Byzantine Empire by the Ottomans. And the city fell in 1453, and that collapsed. Uh, that city's collapsed, ended the Middle Ages, and dawned in the modern era. And it also closed the Silk Road, which had span over 4,000 miles and had lasted from the 2nd century BCE until the mid-15th century, so over 1,500 years. Now, in the 1st century of the Common Era, you know, 8100, Chinese silk was widely sought after in Rome, Egypt, Greece, and other lucrative commodities from the East included things like tea, dyes, perfumes, porcelain. Um, Among Western exports were horses, camels, honey, wine, and gold to China. Aside from generating substantial wealth for the emerging mercantile class, the proliferation of goods such as paper and gunpowder greatly altered the trajectory of various realms, if not world history. Um, so it had survived all of these 
trials and tribulations and things like the plague and people on the Silk Road would travel despite banditry, but it it was incredibly important to this mercantile class to have the ability to trade with China. There was a lot of talk at the time about sailing the other way and you you know to get from Portugal to China remember there wasn't a Suez Canal you had to go all the way down around Cape Horn Africa which was a if my memory serves me correct like a very treacherous strait of ocean to get to China um but there was a lot of talk of what if you go the other way but the leading experts in both Spain and Portugal knew that the earth was three to five times longer uh, than Columbus thought it was in terms of sailing. And they knew that no boat could hold the amount of equipment that you'd need to get there. And indeed, by the time he gets to, he, he sails in the first voyage to the Canary Islands to restock and then sails five weeks to the Bahamas, essentially. And they're about to mutiny, and they're almost out of food. So imagine going twice, three, four times longer than that. They wouldn't have made it to China. And Portugal knew that, which is the official story is that they denied him for that reason. Um, The conspiracy theory is that they sent him on to Spain to spy on Spain and and work with them. But um, he wants to go sail east and he had this idea in the 1480s so remember 1453 the silk roads collapse um this is also a time when traveler no- novels are very very uh um, like very high selling right like in the podcast world true crime is really hot well marco polo's books were very hot at this time and so a young, ambitious man wants to do, uh, uh, you know, all kinds of great traveling and sailing, and he was not uh, um, immune to that. Um, you know, in the 1480s, he was writing Toscanelli for maps, and, uh, you know, many people were implying that there was a route to Asia instead of going around Africa. So he estimated a distance of 2,400 uh, nautical miles. The actual distance is 10,000 nautical miles. And no ship, like I said, could have carried the food and the fresh water for that long of a voyage. Um, you know, the it was uncharted ocean, so literally nobody knew what lay ahead. They had an idea that it was around 10,000 miles. He didn't, because he was very stubborn. And no matter how many of those experts in Portugal and Spain said that it was impossible over a period of months of negotiation, he would say, no, this is this is how it is. I've got these maps. Um, but they're like, we have the evidence. Here's this. And he's like, nope, you're wrong. I'm right. <sighs> um, so it people just felt that it was unfeasible. Um the other thing that plays into this is the Catholic monarchs, which they were known as Isabella and Ferdinand, had just f- uh, finished the Reconquista, an expensive war against the Moors in the Iberian Peninsula, and bringing to close basically an 800-year uh, war for the Iberian Pen- Peninsula, which is Spain, and uh, reconquering 
Spanish territory. So they were doing all kinds of terrible things like confiscating and expelling Jewish families and, and other and Muslim families to steal their wealth. They needed wealth because they were broke. Um, so he, in 1484, proposes his planned voyage to King John II of Portugal, and they said, this is insane, and no. So then he goes and seeks an audience with Ferdinand II of Aragon and Isabella of Castile, who had united several kingdoms in the Iberian Peninsula by marrying and were now ruling together. On May 1st, 1486, that's eight years before he leaves, permission having been granted, Columbus presented his plans to Queen Isabella, who in turn referred it to a committee. Um, so this committee implied the idea impractical, but the monarchs wanted to keep Columbus from taking his ideas elsewhere just in case he was right and wanted to keep their options open. So they gave him an allowance of 14,000 Meridvetes, which I don't know how much that is in modern money, um, basically the annual salary of a regular sailor. And in May 1489, the queen sent him another $10,000. He is writing letters to her saying, I need more money, I need more money, I need more money. That is a consistent theme with Columbus, is that he's always writing, needing more money. Um, so... He got a letter from the king and queen that he was to get lodging and food from everybody everywhere he went. Uh, his brother Bartolome was going to the court of Henry the Seventh, uh, and he was captured by pirates on the way there, and didn't get there until 1491. Um, now, so in 1492, they finally promise that if he succeeds, he would be given the rank of Admiral of the Ocean Sea and appointed viceroy and governor of all lands he might claim for Spain. He had the right to nominate three persons from whom the sovereigns would choose for any office in the new lands, and he would be entitled to 10% of all the revenues from the new lands in perpetuity. He would also have the option of buying one-eighth interest in any commercial venture in the new lands and receive one-eighth of the profits. So why is this important? It means that he stands to benefit. So, if you believe the Portuguese story, he's a bastard from Portugal, which means he has no rank, title, or standing. Or he's just a, a lowly guy from Genoa, the son of a wool merchant, who has no rank, wealth, nothing. He's begging, borrowing everything that he has to try and get this done. He's trying to find a patron. And finding uh, and claiming China, which in his mind is full of riches, full of spices, full of gold, means that he will be the admiral of the ocean and the viceroy and governor of any land that he discovers and claims for, for Spain. And he gets 10% of all the revenues in perpetuity. Not just for him, for every generation that comes after. So his children of his children of his children will be getting 10% of the new spice trade. How enticing is that, right? So when he gets to the islands, he immediately starts asking, where's the gold? Because the other incentive here is 
that he knows he has to, because he has no standing, has to financially benefit the king and queen of Spain. And a lot of this comes into play, especially in the second, third, and fourth voyage. Um, so, you know, eventually he, he loses all of that. So everybody who says he was a man of his time. In the book, Bergen writes, For the record, the sovereigns insisted that the admiral shall, after the safe arrival of his fleet there, force and compel all those who sell therein to treat the Indians very well and lovingly and abstain from doing them any injury. Not only that, but Columbus shall graciously present them with things from the merchandise of their highnesses, which he is carrying for barter, and honor them much. In fact... If members of the fleet mistreated the Indians in any manner whatsoever, Columbus was ordered to punish them severely. The order, unequivocal in writing, proved anything but in action. And so, over the course of his four voyages, as word starts getting back to uh, Ferdinand and Isabella, how he is treating not just the Spanish, but the natives... Uh, he is eventually stripped of all of those titles. He is eventually arrested and put in jail for maltreatment of everyone. He is he dies a pariah in his own time, and yet we still think of this guy as. And now we're told to believe that he's you know marching off the beach with his his chest puffed and he is uh, blessing people with corn. You know, like it, it doesn't match the way that he was saw in his own time. Why is he important in the age of discovery? Leif Erikson. So, again, going back to um, the Protestant versus Catholic notion uh, in the early 1900s, people in Boston erected a statue of Leif Erikson saying he was the real person to discover America. Um, so, in the Protestant era of the founding you get all of these names named after Columbus by Protestants. And then that stops like a hundred, 200, like a hundred, 150 years later. And then Catholics name their cities and, and organizations after Columbus um, district of Columbia, for instance. So um, he believes that he reached uh, Asia and to his dying day, no matter what anybody told him, no matter how much evidence was presented to him, he believed he reached Asia, uh, which is a large reason. Like, have you ever wondered why it's not called Colombia, the United States of Colombia, but instead it's um, named after Amerigo Vespucci, um, who received credit for recognizing this as a new world? It's because he, he just refused to... Uh, believe that he discovered a new world and he was awful. And so they named America after somebody else. So he set sail and on October 7th, uh, you know, the I don't need to tell you the, the boats, you know, the, the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. Um, the Pinta was uh, managed by the Pinzon brothers, which comes into play in the story. But they're on this five-week voyage, and it's incredibly hectic, and they, um, hey, October, by the way, is hurricane season. Uh, he managed in the first voyage not to get hit by any kind of hurricanes, but, you know, hurricanes would wreak havoc on later 
um, missions and would wreak havoc on the settlements themselves. But they're, they're mutinying. They're days away from mutiny and killing Columbus because they believe that he's lied to them. Because Columbus didn't navigate like other navigators. He just went with his gut. He just sort of... He, he did have a sixth sense and a canny ability for navigation by looking at the stars. That part of the poem is true. He was an idiot savant in terms of sailing. Um, but other people didn't understand that, and he didn't do things the way that other sailors did, and so they felt that they were lost in the middle of nowhere. It was incredibly hot. On many of these voyages, they would end up in this strait of the Atlantic that apparently gets, like, no cloud cover, and they were baking to death. Um, and so, uh, running out of food and water, and then they, they spot on the Pinta, um, it was the lookout, Rodrigo de Triana, around two in the morning, they see birds. Why is it important that the Pinta, the Pinzon brothers, and Rodrigo here spot land first? Because it means that they technically get to claim the land for themselves because part of the deal of the Pinzon brothers taking this risk to go was to get lands for themselves. But Columbus rewrites history because he's the one writing to the king and queen that he spotted the land, and he's the one that named it um, San Salvador in the Bahamas. Uh, he met natives called the Guhani, and uh, he states, I saw some who had marks of wounds on their bodies, and I made signs to them asking what they were. And they showed me how people from other islands nearby came there and tried to take them and how they defended themselves. And I believed and believe that they come from here, from t terra firma, to take them captive. They should be good and intelligent servants, for I see they say very quickly everything that is said to them. And I believe they would become Christians very easily, for it seemed to me that they had no religion. Our Lord pleasing, at the time of my departure, I will take six of them from here to your highness in order that they may learn to speak. So... Um, he initially encountered the Lucayan, the Tiano, the Arawak peoples. He noted their gold ornaments, talked about gold incessantly. He took some of the Arawaks prisoner and insisted that they guide him to the source of the gold. And Columbus did not believe he needed to create a fortified outpost, writing, The people here are simple and warlike matters. I could conquer the whole of them with 50 men and govern them as I pleased. The Tianos. Uh, told Columbus about another indigenous tribe called the Caribs. And they were fierce warriors and cannibals who made frequent raids on the Tianos, often capturing their women. Um, that documentary, um, the uh, Columbus in America, like never mentions the Caribs. They only talk about the Tiano. They don't mention the Arawaks. Uh, you know, they literally say in the documentary... They never had any war. There was no conflict before the Europeans showed up. There was never any arguments, and they settled everything through handball games, and there was no violence until the white people showed up, which is just completely untrue. According to, um, like, Columbus wasn't the only one writing. He took people with him who were classically... 
uh, educated and people who could write. You know, De La Casas is one of the people that sank him, who was this Catholic friar who came to convert natives to Catholicism and became his biggest critic and really the moral conscience of the New World in the beginning. Um, the Caribs were incredibly violent, would travel around uh, by boat up to a thousand miles in other places and would do horrible things. Like once they got the ability to communicate and all throughout this story, the new world was very much like the old world in that you had tribes of people battling for land and resources and these islands were very scarce. Like the, the people that he encountered, the Arawaks in Hispaniola were, they were starving. They were eating grubs. Uh, they were emaciated. They were uh, attacked by the Caribs and, you know, the Caribs would come and raid a village and take their resources and like eat their children. I mean, it was, it, it's wild stuff that is in the book. Um, that never seems to be mentioned on the in let's cancel Columbus Day side. The amount of violence that existed was no different than the Spanish who had just finished an 800-year war. So the Tianos were absolutely peaceful people. And the writings of everybody from these voyages, um, f- f- the Arawaks and the Tianos were happy were peaceful people who were put upon by other warring tribes uh, who did actually settle, but they're telling in this documentary one side of the story, right? Um, but, you know, the, the idea of, of him just kind of rolling, of Columbus rolling up on a ship and rolling out and walking on with his chest puff, like the, the Spanish were just as scared and is terrified when they landed on this first voyage as the Tianos and Arawaks were when they saw Columbus, because they didn't know what they were, you know, they didn't know if they were going to be hostile or, I mean, it's two completely strange, odd worlds. And so they would communicate and they would trade goods. Uh, Columbus would hand the natives a lot of things like beads. Later mirrors would become incredibly important. Um, and little trinkets, like hawk bells, for instance, a little bell that you put on a hawk, which becomes very important later. Um, but he immediately lands and starts sizing up the natives and trying to evaluate their fitness in terms of what value they bring in the slave trade back and brings several hundred people back um, in one voyage, for instance, to be slaves, to be sold in Seville, because remember, he gets a cut, but the majority of them die on the way. Rives in Libson, um, Lisbon, excuse me, Libson's the, the podcast host, the word of his voyage just explodes. Again, starts conflict between Portugal and Spain, because Portugal finds out that there's actually something called Brazil, that there is that island. And the Pope has to mediate with the Treaty of Tordesillas of 1494 that basically gives them everything 
uh, east of like a certain parallel. I think it was the 37th parallel. And then everything west was Spain and Spanish. Before he returns, he leaves men on the island. It, it is hard to explain. The book does a great job of kind of explaining this, how incredibly messed up this is. Uh, leaves them with like no supplies. Good luck. Um, but he is concerned that because he didn't immediately find like he he I, he thought he literally like would land, and there would just be a massive amount of gold laying on the beaches that he would start picking up, uh, and there wasn't. They would find pyrite. I went to Puerto Rico uh, this past uh, summer, and there was pyrite everywhere in the streams. But so he would like collect all the pyrite, and he would take it back, and then they'd be like, "This isn't gold, dude." Uh, <laughs> but so because he doesn't find um, gold, he immediately starts selling the the Spanish crown on the wealth in human capital, in slavery, uh, of the people that he found. Uh, he, he says, They ought to be good servants, and of good skill, for I see they repeat very quickly whatever I said to them. That was a letter back to the king and queen. He doesn't know if that's going to fly with the crown, so he leaves uh, part of his crew there on the island. So when he gets back, they have to let him go back. And he's basically assigning these people to their death warrant. And he doesn't like, they don't draw straws. He just decides the 14 he's going to leave and pushes off his boat and starts sailing back. And then they wave and they're like, bye. Um, and he doesn't know exactly what's going to happen when he comes back. Well, what happened was that all of them were killed. They were just a few days short. you know. So he, he basically ends up going back on the second mission. He brings uh, 17 ships with nearly 1,500 men, including soldiers, sailors, priests, carpenters, stonemasons, metalworkers, farmers, um, a physician who wrote, uh, uh, Alvarez Chanca, who wrote a detailed account, Juan Ponce de Leon, the first governor of Puerto Rico and Florida, the father of Bartolome de Las Casas, um, a cartographer who is credited with making the first world map of the new world, Juan de la Cosa, and Columbus's younger brother, Diego, um, and they arrive to La Navidad in Hispaniola, which is kind of on the north side, uh, in, I believe it's in modern day Haiti. Uh, the 39 Spaniards had been left, excuse me, not 14. Um, and Columbus found the fort in ruins and destroyed by the Tianos after some of the Spaniards reportedly antagonized their hosts with their unrestrained lust for gold and women. Um, basically those 39 men, um, were desperate, started stealing food and raping women. And so they got killed for it. So he then established a poorly located and short-lived settlement to the east, La Isabella, in the Dominican Republic. Uh, I think it's Playa Plata is where it's at now. Um, eventually, they end up settling down in Santo Domingo. You can go where we went on our honeymoon last year to Santo Domingo and see the original governor's mansion. Uh, we also visited Old San Juan in Puerto Rico. Um, and obviously, I'm a huge St. Augustine nut, which is the northern outpost of the Spanish um, 
slave trade and gold empire for the for the most part. Um, so he would then drop everybody off, and then he went to explore Cuba and Jamaica, and returned to Hispaniola. And by the end of 1494, disease and famine had killed two thirds of the Spanish settlers, and Columbus Im- implemented economía which is a Spanish labor system that rewarded the conquerors with the labor of conquered non-Christian people. And Columbus executed Spanish colonists for minor crimes and used dismemberment as punishment. Columbus and colonists enslaved the indigenous people, including children. Natives were beaten, raped, and tortured for the location of imagined gold. Thousands committed suicide rather than face oppression. And then in 1495, he rounded up 1,500 Arawaks, some of whom had rebelled in a great slave raid. About 500 of the strongest were shipped to Spain as slaves with 200 of those dying en route. So a little bit more about this uh, tribute system. With his two brothers, he established three more fortresses. uh, And he used this to enforce a system of tribute that ruined the island's previously resilient economy. Henceforth, every Indian over the age of 14 had to give the equivalent of a hawk's bell filled with gold. Casicas, or tribal leaders, were required to give even more to the Spanish occupiers. Indians who lived in regions where gold was scarce could substitute cotton, spun or woven, not raw, if they wished, but everyone had to give his tribute on pain of death. Those who complied received a stamped copper or brass token to wear around their necks in what became a symbol of intolerable shame. Of the Now, why shame? Because you cooperated with the occupiers. Because you didn't have everybody occupying. You had people in the mountains of Hispaniola. Um, in, in the middle between Dominican Republic and Haiti, there's large mountain areas. And there were tribes of people who were resistors and were constantly not only... Um, networking the tribes to attack the Spanish colonizers, but also working with mutineers who were Spanish uh, guys who had, who had gotten sick of Columbus and started cooperating with the native Americans. But it was a shame uh, to work with them of the system. La Casas charged even the cruelest of the Turks or Moors or the Huns and Vandals who laid waste to our kingdoms and lands destroyed our lives would have found such a demand impossibly onerous and would have deemed it unreasonable and abhorrent. And so, Bergen continues, In time, the Indians depleted the island's limited supply of gold, and what seemed like a modest amount became increasingly difficult to acquire, even with unremitting effort picking through sand and shrubs. The system was in some ways worse than slavery, and it obliterated any chance that the Indians would assist or cooperate with the Spanish in any other endeavor besides the pointless tributes of gold. By imposing this system, Columbus ensured a modest supply of gold would be his at the cost of everything he needed or could have wished. For example, Guaranex, one of the Caicicas, the influential Caicica, argued that the, that the land used to provide a minimal amount of gold could grow enough wheat to feed all of Spain, not just one, but ten times. But Columbus refused to consider the idea deciding instead to have the tribute and perpetuate the offense. So basically what the what Guaranex would say was like, we could grow 10 times the amount of wheat that could feed Spain, but you're obsessed with gold. So instead of using the resources of the island that would have naturally benefited the native peoples and Spain, he was doggedly obsessed with gold. Um, 
again, Lacasas was this, you know, person who was there, who was this friar who was there to convert people who became basically their spokesperson um, for history. Recounting this policy, Lacasas howled with indignation. Some complied, he noted, and for others it was impossible. And so falling into the most wretched way of living, some took refuge in the mountains while others, since the violence and provocation and injuries on the part of the Christians never ceased, killed some Christians for special damages and tortures they suffered. The Christians responded by murdering and torturing their antagonists, not respecting the human and divine justice and natural law under whose authority they did. There is no denying the force of Lacassus's outrage, but Indians were not the innocents of his imagination. They had been slaveholders long before the Europeans arrived. So, essentially, even the moral conscience of, of this story is saying there were people who were Native Americans like the, the Caribes, who were enslaving others as well, and we were just compounding the misery and enslaving many of the enslavers too. So he writes on, demoralized by the Spanish tribute, Bergen writes on, unnerved by their own prophecies, many Indians took steps to escape in the only way left to them. Columbus became aware of the dimensions of the tragedy decimating Indians, when it was pointed out to him that the natives had been vexed by a famine so widespread that more than 50,000 men had died, and every day they fell, everywhere like sickened flocks, in the words of Peter Martyr. The reality was even more terrible than famine. Peter Martyr was a classically trained uh, member of the voyages uh, and um, was European, obviously, named Peter. The reality was even more terrible than famine. It was self-inflicted. The Indians destroyed their stores of bread so that neither they nor the invaders would be able to eat it. They plunged off cliffs, they poisoned themselves with roots, and they starved themselves to death. Oppressed by the impossible requirements to deliver tributes of gold, the Indians were no longer able to tend their fields or care for their sick, children, and elderly. They had given up and committed mass suicide to avoid being killed or captured by Christians and avoid sharing their land with them. The dwindling number of survivors found themselves trapped in a survivalist endgame. Some took refuge in the mountains where Spanish dogs set upon them. Those who avoided the dogs succumbed to starvation and illness. Although the estimates of the population are inexact, the trend is plain. Of the approximately 300,000 Indians in Hispaniola at the time of Columbus's first voyage in 1492, 100,000 or so died between 1494 and 1496 half of them during the mass suicide. Lacasas estimated that the Indian population of 1496 was only one-third of what it had been in 1494. Quote, in sarcastic tones, what a splendid harvest and how quickly they reaped it. Twelve years later, in 1508, a census counted around 60,000 Indians, or one-fifth of the original population, and by 1548, Fernandez de Oviedo found only one only 500 Indians, 1548, 100 years later, 500 people left. The survivor of the hundreds of thousands who populated the islands with, when Columbus arrived, who had seen the fulfillment of the longstanding prophecy. Um, those are staggering numbers. Part of the challenge, I think, of the, the Columbian exchange, the meeting of East and West, is that it was always, it w was inevitable. Like, there was never not going to be a time when someone from the Western Hemisphere met someone from the Eastern Hemisphere. 
you know, and many of the people that were just mentioned died from disease, which also I think was inevitable, right? Like introducing smallpox to people who have no natural vaccination to smallpox was going to be a brutal thing. Like the Inca empire dying out basically because of disease is an immense tragedy that I don't know could have been avoided. What could have been avoided was 50,000 people committing suicide because they'd rather die than be slaves to such brutal people. What could have been avoided was cutting off people's hands because they didn't bring you a hawk's bell of gold on an island that didn't have any gold. What could have been avoided was a man who could have laid down his pride and said, well, maybe I got this wrong and there's no gold here and I'm not actually in Asia. Um, but Christopher Columbus was just a massively sick in the head person um, who did a lot of terrible things. You know, a few other things and uh, Vox actually extracted the worst stuff from the book which I'm kind of doing too, but like there's not a lot of great stuff here when you examine the, the, the character of Christopher Columbus. And they kind of go through some of, some of the highlights of what a bad dude he was uh, from the book. You know, like Columbus kidnapping a Carib woman and gave her to a crew member to rape on page 143. Um while I was in the boat, I captured a very beautiful woman who the Lord Admiral Columbus gave to me. When I had taken her to my cabin, she was naked, as was their custom. I was filled with desire to take my pleasure with her and attempted to satisfy my desire. She was unwilling and so treated me with her nails that I wished I had never begun. I then took a piece of rope and whipped her soundly and she let forth such incredible screams that you would not have believed your ears." Eventually, we came to such terms, I assure you, that you would have thought that she had been brought up in a school for whores. And Bergen Riley ends that with, the rape of the new world had begun. Um, you know, after an attack by more than 2,000 Indians, uh, Columbus had an underling, Alonzo de Ojeda, Ojeda, bring him three Indians, whom Columbus then ordered publicly beheaded as a message, and... Uh, Cut off his cut off the ears of another for retribution for failing to be helpful to the Spaniards when fording a stream. Uh, he ordered fifteen hundred men and women seized, letting four hundred go and condemning five hundred to be sent to Spain and another six hundred to be enslaved by Spanish men remaining on the island. Uh, we mentioned that one. Mentioned the the brass bells. Uh, we mentioned the mass suicide. Uh, we mentioned the mass death of only 500 being, uh, you know, none of that caught the attention, though, until he starts treating the Spaniards bad, badly. Um, he ordered at least a dozen Spaniards to be whipped in public, tied by the neck, bound together by feet for trading gold for food to avoid starvation. He ordered a woman's tongue to be cut out for having spoken ill of the admiral and his brothers. Another woman was then stripped and placed on the back of a donkey to be whipped as punishment for falsely claiming to be pregnant. He ordered Spaniards to be hanged for stealing bread. Bergen, Berg, 
Bergreen continues, I've been saying his name wrong the whole time, I'm sorry. He ordered the ears and nose cut off of one miscreant, who was also whipped, shackled, and banished from the island. He ordered a cabin boy's hand nailed in public to the spot where he had pulled a trap from the river and caught a fish. Whippings for minor infractions occurred with alarming frequency. Columbus ordered one wrongdoer to receive a hundred lashes, which would which could be fatal, for stealing sheep and another for lying about the incident. The unlucky fellow was named Juan Moreno, received 100 lashes for failing to gather enough food for Columbus's pantry. Um, he once admitted in a letter uh, to a Spanish friend, to a friend of the Spanish queen, quote, there are plenty of dealers who go about looking for girls. Those from nine to 10 are now in demand for all ages at a good price must be paid. Um, Indian slaves were beheaded when their Spanish captors couldn't be bothered to untie them. So on the third voyage, he returns in 1498, and there's been a rebellion, and he is trying them for disobedience. One rebel leader is hanged. In 1499, Columbus sends two ships to Spain, asking the court of Spain to appoint a royal commissioner to help him govern, and then shows up Bobadilla, and Bobadilla is the one who just starts like basically confiscating all of his stuff, gets into fights with all three Columbus brothers, seized his property, declares himself a governor, took depositions from all the enemies. Basically, the thing that he did that Bobadilla got him tried for was punishing a man found guilty of stealing corn by having his ears and nose cut off and then selling him into slavery. Eventually, in October 1500, they, they were out exploring. They show up, present themselves to Bobadilla, and were put in chains and sent back to... Um, Spain, where they languished in jail for six weeks before King Ferdinand ordered their release. Not long after, King and Queen summoned the Columbus brothers to the Alhambra Palace in Granada. They expressed indignation at Bobadilla's actions, who was then recalled in order to make restitutions of the property he had confiscated from Columbus. The royal couple heard the brothers' pleas, restored their freedom and wealth, and after much persuasion, agreed to fund Columbus's fourth voyage. However, Nicholas de Ovando was to replace Bobadilla as the new governor of the West Indies. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> like, this guy perpetrates all of this evil. Bobadilla shows up. It's kind of a roughneck, but then he is uh, given a tongue lashing and they still continue to support Columbus. So in 1502, Columbus left Cadiz with his flagship Santa Maria and three other vessels, and they recruited by 140 men, including his brother Bartolomo, as second-in-command and his son Fernando. He sailed to the Moroccan coast to rescue Portuguese sailors said to be besieged by Moors, and the siege had been lifted by the time they arrived, so Spaniards stayed only a few days and continued on to the Canary Islands. So they sailed basically into a hurricane, and they're hoping to find shelter on Hispaniola, and they arrive in Santa Domingo, but uh, Bobadilla refused to listen to his warning that a hurricane was approaching. So instead, while Columbus's ship sheltered at the mouth of Rio de Juana, the first Spanish treasure fleet sailed into the hurricane. Columbus's ship survived only with minor damage, while 20 of the 30 ships in the governor's fleet were lost, along with 500 lives, including Bobadilla. Although a few of the surviving ships managed to straggle back to Santa Domingo, the fragile ship carrying Columbus's personal belongings and his 4,000 pesos in gold was the sole vessel to reach Spain. 
The gold was his tenth of the profits of Hispaniola, equal to 240,000 maravedis. Um, remember, I think it was, was it 17,000 was the annual salary for a sailor? So <clears throat> after a brief stop at Jamaica, Columbus sailed to Central America, arriving at the coast of Honduras on July 30. Here, Bartolomo found native merchants in a large canoe, and he landed on the continental mainland at Punta Kansas, now Puerto Castilla, Honduras, and he spent two months exploring Honduras and many parts of Central America. Then he went on to uh, find Las Tortugas, which is still named after him, and his ships were uh, damaged in a storm off the coast of Cuba, and they were stuck on a beach for like six months with 230 men stranded on Jamaica, excuse me. The story in the book is great, So, but basically what happened is from Jamaica to Hispaniola, they paddle a canoe with the help of six natives, and they make it. The governor of Santo Domingo, Ovando, hated Columbus and like kept re- like doing everything he could not to rescue these guys. So he he is stuck on this island in Jamaica forever because the natives don't want to help him because they're all terrible to the natives, of course. Like they've stopped feeding him. They don't really have the manpower to just push them around. He concocts this whole he knows that there's a lunar eclipse coming on this certain date. And he convinces the people of the island when it, that he's a god that is predicting that he will blot out the sun. And it, it pays off, it happens, and they are scared senseless by Columbus and give him everything that he wants. And it's how him and his men end up surviving. Um, but eventually they were rescued. Uh, now, by this time, all the traveling has just really taken a toll, a toll on his health. He had um, uh, influenza, bleeding from the eyes, fever, temporary blindness, gout. Um, some believe some form of degenerative uh, arthritis. You know, he he was very sick, so he goes back to Spain and eventually uh, passes away. You know, he dies convinced that he found Asia somewhat of a pariah because by now people have heard from La Casas and others who are like, no, this guy is not a good dude at all. And he killed a lot of Spanish and he killed a lot of people. And so a little bit more about this, Bergen writes, Bergreen writes, the drastic devaluation of Columbus seems a recent phenomenon, but it originated at the time of his voyages. The Spanish judicial investigator, Francisco de Bobadilla, sent him home in chains. King Ferdinand disdained him. Bishop Fonseca's intense dislike for Columbus was widely known. Amerigo Vespucci fostered the impression that he, rather than Columbus, had discovered a new world and gave his name to the continent. His former lieutenant, Alonso de de Ojeda, laid claim to territories first visited by Columbus. Nicolas de Ovando, who succeeded Columbus as governor of Hispaniola, endangered his life and mocked him. The Porras brothers, Francisco Roldan, and others who sailed with Columbus staged mutinies with little or no retribution. And then, of course, there was La Casas, Barlome de La Casas, who gave him the most lasting damage. La Casas championed the nearly extinct victims of this outrage. Quote, the simplest people in the world, he wrote of the Tiano Indians, long-suffering, unassertive, and submissive, without malice or guile, utterly faithful and obedient. 
In short, the kind of subjects the Spanish crown would want to have. Yet instead of cultivating these gentle and intelligent people, quote, we know for sure our fellow countrymen have, through their cruelty and wickedness, depopulated and laid waste an area which boasted more than ten kingdoms, each of them larger than the Iberian Peninsula. They slaughtered their children, quote, on occasion, running through a mother and her baby with a single thrust of their swords. All this Lacasas witnessed. He estimated that the despotic, quote, the despotic and diabolical behavior of the Christians has, over the last 40 years, led to an unjust and totally unwarranted death of more than 12 million souls, women and children among them. Indeed, he believed 15 million to be a more accurate tally of death caused by Christians resorting to torture, wholesale slaughter, and the harshest, most iniquitous and brutal slavery that man has ever devised for his fellow man. Lacasas figured figures have long been debated, but even conservative estimates are stark. Of 250,000 Indians under Spanish rule, only 40,000 survived after 15 years. After a few decades, only a few hundred survived. So the legacy of Columbus in his own time was terrible because he was terrible. And the only reason that we revere him now is because he was a useful figure in the founding era. He was a useful figure by Italian-Americans trying to find their own dignity and their own story in America. He was a useful figure by American politicians in the 19th and 20th century uh, to build on the American patriotic story. And in many ways, they completely perverted that story. Washington Irving, the man who wrote The Legends of Sleepy Hollow and Rip Van Winkle, wrote the first English or the most significant English biography of Columbus when he was stationed in Spain and would go on to write a two-volume biography of Columbus after spending years pouring through the archives. He also uh, questioned the origin of his Italianness and thought that he might be Portuguese. But Washington Irving, like so many biographies in the 19th century, were just full of inaccuracies because they didn't know what we know now in the age of global information sharing and created so many of those myths. The poem, I, I don't know exactly where the in 1492 poem comes from. I hope you have a better appreciation for who Columbus was, what Columbus Day is, what it is used for why there is controversy. The reality of Christopher Columbus is that he was a complicated person who was mostly terrible. Is this the type of person that we feel that we ought to celebrate? In my personal opinion, absolutely not. He initiated the slave trade. He initiated the policy of native extermination that continued, you know, well into the 20th century. He, what's good here? If you're going to have days celebrating a common story, if you're going to use holidays to build a culturally cohesive narrative that brings us together, why would we not want it rooted in truth? Why would we want it rooted in a reminder of everything that is controversial and terrible in Americans in America's history? I feel like statues of Thomas Jefferson and George Washington are worth fighting for because they stand for the creation of a country around liberal democratic values, capitalistic values that led to the freeing of slaves, that led to 
the freeing of so many of the lower classes, the increasing of wealth for the poorest people in the world, the, the level of innovation that has come out of America and the revolution that was set in motion by the founders is beneficial for all people and is positive for all people despite their very, very clear flaws as slave owners. But can we say the same about Columbus? What about his personal actions? Are honorable? Are to be mimicked? Uh, to, to be replicated? What is there in this story that we can take away in a positive way that kind of like builds a cohesive narrative? So the very people who are fighting against getting rid of Columbus Day who say, you know, you're just trying to indoctrinate our kids against America are really fighting for an anti-American story. And it makes absolutely no sense to me why you'd want to fight for someone who was evil and actions that were evil. Especially when you now know that it was rooted in attempts to get you to be, to propagandize you, essentially, to love the American government. I hope that this clears it up. I hope that it makes a little bit more sense for you. I think it's certainly a no-brainer. If you don't, then please research some more and continue thinking on it. You don't have to agree with me, but that's the beauty of America. We all can get to the bottom of the truth and decide for ourselves and stop forcing each other to do other stuff. Mostly the point of America. Maybe we'll get there one day. Thank you so much for listening. If you got something out of this, please share it with your friends. I really do appreciate you taking the time to, to listen through to all of this. And uh, thank you to everyone for being a part of it. We will talk to you soon. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.